This is Kincaid and Breckenridge, exclusively on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. This is Kincaid and Breckenridge Highlights podcast for March the 22nd, a day where we woke up to some horrible news, another attack, another terrorist attack, this time in Brussels, Belgium. We spent a good part of the day talking about that on our program and taking your phone calls as well. We had an interesting conversation uh, in addition to all of that about uh, doctors, not just in Alberta, but in Canada, how we compensate doctors, what kind of incentives we provide doctors, and how we get to patient-oriented care. Dr. Louis Francis Cuddy has ruffled some feathers in the uh, physician uh, community in Canada, but uh, he had some interesting points to make, and he joined us uh, on the program. You can listen to us Monday through Friday, 9.30 to 12.30 on News Talk 770. I'm Roger. That's Rob. I'm going to spend a lot of time in this uh, next hour of the program focusing uh, further on the breaking news developments out of Brussels, Belgium today. An attack that, uh, according to certain reports, has uh, as many as 31 killed, two blasts at uh, the airport, one at a subway station, a metro station, and... um, has certainly got um, not just Belgian, but really the Western world on edge today. Well, you got France's president saying, you know, that, that this is war. Uh, and, and really, I mean, you've, you've got ISIS saying the same thing. I mean, ISIS clearly seems to be declaring war on Europe. The Islamic State releasing a statement claiming responsibility for these attacks. Um, but, but we really don't know a lot still in terms of the particular individuals responsible, whether there's some overlap uh, with those responsible for the attacks in Paris back in November. And if so, what that indicates, uh, even the nature of the, the explosives, et cetera. So still a lot of questions, but uh, it does speak to something that, that's uh, been a known problem for some time. And that's the extent uh, of the radicalization and, and the sympathy for the Islamic State in Belgium and in Brussels in particular, at least even in one neighborhood in Belgium. Uh, joining us on the line for some further analysis, David Gardenstein-Ross, he's a senior fellow with the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, also an adjunct assistant professor in Georgetown University's Security Studies Program. David, thanks for joining us here today. It's good to join you, although obviously uh, when we talk, it's usually bad news. Yeah, unfortunately so. Uh, David, what are the questions that stand out in your mind as we try to piece together what happened here today? The key one is exactly what you had articulated. Uh, is this the same cell that Salah Abdus Salam was a part of. Because if it was, it's the first time in Europe that a jihadist cell was able to carry out a major attack, Paris, and then carry out a major follow-on attack. That hasn't happened before. Uh, that's the key question, I think. Uh, there are multiple other questions that are related. A second question is, what will the political fallout be? What are politicians going to do? Because uh, this, this attack isn't uh, a bolt from the blue. It's not something that people didn't see coming. And let me be very clear. I'm not suggesting this was an intelligence failure. Rather, it's a product of having security services who are massively overstretched and have all been but but everything but waving their arms saying we're overstretched. We can't follow all the array of threats. Um, And now it's culminated uh, in, in, sadly, another bloody day in Europe. You know, you, you mentioned the the uh, security being massively overstretched. That's something that we highlighted in the uh, introduction of this program today, David. It's literally an impossible situation, and honestly, it's very grave. Those are words from a security, uh, a counterterrorism official speaking about the situation in Belgium. Where is there assistance to be had for the security apparatus in 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 Brussels? Then does it have to come from without, or do, do uh, will there be politicians who pay a price for underfunding it? 
Well, that's um, a great question. But if you look at um, what the police and intelligence services have been doing, um, you know, it's not just a funding issue. It's also a personnel issue. Right. Like their personnel are, are surging onto this problem set. And so in per, adding more personnel, it's something that you can obviously do and they should do. Um, but it's not going to uh, immediately solve a problem. It, it takes um, some time to get people up to speed and ready to uh, handle these issue sets. But, I mean, you have interlocking issues. You have uh, the issue of underfunding. You have the issue of uh, foreign fighter flow and foreign fighter returnees. Uh, you have the issue of ISIS's caliphate. And uh, could Europe do more about the fact that um, this caliphate is still standing, which gives a big advantage to um, terrorist groups as well as uh, serving as a recruiting tool for Europeans. Um, and then you have the, the migrant inflows, uh, the massive migrant inflows, which have, have further stretched the resources of intelligence services and security apparatus to the breaking point. Well, and and it's, it's, it's a kind of problem that Canada and the U.S., don't have we we have issues with radicalization no doubt but we have i suppose the the benefit of of a great distance and traveling from north america to the middle east and back again is is much more difficult but but why is this so acute in belgium um that's a good question i, I think that uh, there are a few reasons uh one is uh in, in brussels in particular you have um a massive muslim population which is uh, not assimilated. You have uh, kind of a ghettoized uh, population with neighborhoods such as Mullenbeck. Um, you can point to blame for this situation on um, various sides, both uh, European uh, racism and um, uh, and the difficulties that they have uh, integrating the other, coupled with um, the Muslim community being insular and um, the presence of things like Salafi jihadist imams, uh, networks like the Sharia for Belgium network, which has been a part of ISIS's um, uh, European network. Uh, there, there's, there's unfortunately um, plenty of blame, plenty of problem to go around. Uh, but th- that, that relates to why Belgium. Belgium has the highest per capita uh, number of um, foreign fighters to go to Iraq, Syria, of, of any uh, country in Europe. It's a very small country. It has limited resources. It's also, incidentally, um, the de facto uh, capital of Europe. Uh, you, you, have, um, the, you have, for example, um, uh, NATO headquarters there, um, European Union, uh, important Euro- European Union offices, um, which make it a, an attractive target, but also one where you have uh, a, a lot of, of uh, people who are devoted to the cause of ISIL and other jihadist groups. All right, David, to, to, the, to the question then about the, the strained security in, in uh, Belgium, I mean, is this a case where this, this uh, I guess I'll just call it a terrorist cell, that they hit a soft spot in the Western world, or is there con- reason for neighboring nations to be concerned? There's obviously reason for neighboring nations to be concerned. I mean, we just saw a bloody attack in Paris, which killed over 100 people. Um, in you know the UK, uh, you saw the the seven seven attacks. And right. You had a soldier beheaded on this on the streets of London. Right, and we're hearing warnings from British politicians right now that they're planning something spectacular. Yeah, and you know you also have similar warnings coming from uh, their internal uh, security chiefs talking about how they also can't monitor the scale of all the plots. So, in terms of the question, should neighboring countries be concerned? Yes, obviously. 
Okay, so when ISIS claims responsibility for this, when, when a statement is released by someone claiming to speak for the Islamic State, does that necessarily mean that they're directly tied to this plot or that the, the plot connects back to, to Raqqa, for example, to anybody in Syria or Iraq? No, the statement itself um, generally means nothing. Sometimes you'll have statements that actually um, tip the hand and make clear that it does link back. So when ISIS first claimed responsibility for the Paris attacks, um, people thought that the statement showed that ISIS was out of the loop because they referred to an attack occurring in a place where there was no attack. And so people thought, oh, well, this shows that they don't really know what was going on and they're not connected. Actually, it showed the opposite. It showed that they were deeply connected because the, the final attack that they were referring to in a location where it didn't occur, that was Salah Abdus Salah who backed out of that attack. So that, that statement actually was very telling in terms of their deep connection uh, to the Paris attack. But the, the fact, uh, you know, generally claims of responsibility don't mean a whole lot uh, unless they're accompanied by something else. After the 7-7 attacks, the attacks that struck uh, the streets of London on July 7th of 2005, Al-Qaeda released a claim of responsibility, for example, that showed the 7-7 attackers uh, expressing in advance the fact that they were going to carry out these attacks. That very definitively showed their connection to Al-Qaeda's core leadership. Okay, so further to that then, I mean, there, there, there's a case to be made then for, for taking on ISIS in Iraq and Syria, but does it necessarily follow that if we hit them hard there, it makes Belgium or France or, or Germany any safer? Not in the short term. And in fact, right. in the short term, uh, as they lose ground, they're going to try to carry out attacks abroad. In the longer term, not having a safe haven in Iraq, in Iraq and Syria uh, will uh, make other countries safer. Because when you have uh, this arena in which ISIS operatives are engaging in urban warfare on a daily basis, and where they're able to train, and where they're able to plan, um, that definitively increases the chance that spectacular attacks, like the Paris attack, uh, will be successful. How valuable is Salah Abdus? Uh, excuse me. How valuable is Salah Abdeslam in in custody? Is this an asset that I mean? There's been people wondering: Should we uh, squeeze him for information? Should he be tortured? And and you know, say what you will about torture. Is he a valuable asset in, in custody, or does it just sort of take one pawn off the board? And now we have to focus our attention elsewhere. He's clearly a valuable asset. I think that's the reason why this attack was carried out when it was. And bearing in mind that we don't yet know that this is connected to him, but uh, you know, the evidence uh, points somewhat in that direction. Uh, assuming that this is connected, they probably moved up the time of the attack uh, in order to uh, make sure that uh, they carried it out before he gave up information that could be used to arrest other members of the network. Now, we don't know how valuable he is. You know, he wasn't a ringleader of the attack. He wasn't a leader. So there's a lot of questions um, that he may not have information about, though he may know more than we think. But clearly the answer as to whether he's valuable is yes, he's valuable. It's just a question of how valuable. Right. All right. Well, we'll see how this continues to unfold uh, through the day. As you say, David, uh, a lot of unanswered questions still at this point, but uh, certainly appreciate the insight. And thanks for making some time for us here. My pleasure. All right. That's David Gardenstein-Ross, a senior fellow with the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, also uh, with Georgetown University Security Studies Program, uh, you know, highlighting the challenges in, in not just understanding this, but, but stopping this. And in the short term, there are no easy answers. So 
Here, here's one thing, though, that I, as a citizen of Canada, would like. Um, I would like to, it to not be a broken record whenever we have one of these. Things. I mean, these, these attacks, they happen with enough frequency now that, that uh, I'm not shocked by them anymore. You know, Paris was horrendous. The, the atrocity in Paris was just, you know, made you sick to your stomach. But did anybody say, wow, I can't believe that happened? No, you can believe that it happened. It's still upsetting. 9-11, now that rocked me. That was, you know, horrendous. And I, I had an emotional trauma that day, though I was several thousand kilometers away in the safety of Vancouver on that morning. But y- you get my point, right? Brussels happens this morning. I read about it on Twitter and I say, damn it, now I'm going to talk about this this morning. I'd rather not. I mean, I love bringing breaking news to the people. I would just rather not have a a death toll above uh, 30 when it happens. The point I'm making in this is that just as predictable as, hey, these attacks are going to happen, is having our leaders step out and say, well, uh, first of all, I just want to condemn the attacks. I mean, they're like sports interviews at this point. I'm going to condemn the attacks and... uh, I just want you to know we stand with our uh, with our allies over there in um, Belgium, and uh, uh, let uh, let uh, terrorists know uh, you'll find no safe haven as long as we're around. Okay, next. I know. Yeah, I, uh, I get kind of cynical about it. I mean, just to single up Premier Notley for a second, and Premier Notley put out a statement today saying, you know, where our thoughts are with the people in Belgium, and we condemn this. And but it's kind of like, well, of course you do. Uh, of course we all do. Does it really need to be pointed out? I guess if, if politicians don't put out that kind of blanket statement that, you know, you're going to get uh, partisans to say, ah, oh, well, there's a, how about that? So-and-so had nothing to say about this terrorist attack. But I don't know why the premier of Alberta needs to weigh in on a, on a terrorist attack in, in Belgium. Uh, I think we certainly need to hear from, from the prime minister about Canada's response. But we already know that you condemn it. We'll give you the benefit of the doubt on that. You don't need to come out and say, we condemn this, because of course you do. Yeah, don't waste your time at the microphone. And don't waste my time by stepping up to the microphone. I honestly, legitimately, I want like a more mommy-daddy response to this. You know when you did something bad and your mom or your dad got down, and they kind of bent down, they didn't get down on a knee, but they just kind of got down in your face and they said, if you do this again, okay, we're going to take the Nintendo away. Well, I wouldn't right? mind seeing some, some anger. Yeah, you know, to say you know we're we're outraged by this. We're part of this fight. Uh, we're going to do what we can to to stop this this evil. I, I don't mind. I don't mind that kind of a response. But we'll, we'll get to what what we did get as a response from the public safety minister today. Uh, and and they look some legitimate questions about you know what's so what's going on here. What's your understanding of of the threat we're, we currently face? So we'll take a break. We're going to get to more of that. Time for your phone calls as well here nine seven four eight two five five. We're back after this. All right, welcome back, Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. We, we will get to some of the comments from the public safety minister this morning. Uh, we're also hoping to hear from the uh, public safety critic for the Conservative Party. Uh, we'll get, get their thoughts on, on Canada's response. I do think Aaron O'Toole is uh, going to phone us at uh, 1045. He's in a committee meeting. It's budget day in Ottawa, so these guys are all pretty busy. We did reach out to uh, the public safety minister, that being Ralph Goodale. We've also reached out to Aaron O'Toole. Um, Ralph Goodale, we might be able to speak to tomorrow. Uh, Aaron O'Toole tool we expect a phone call at 10 45 this morning all right well, we have the phone lines open as well for your comments 974-8255 and uh, let's start with mark mark welcome to the program hey guys um i just like to know why torture is such a touchy subject when it comes to these terrorists 
Well, hang on. I got a question for you. Why do you want... Okay. Uh, are you a proponent or an opponent of Oh, torture? no, I'm for torture. Okay. No problem whatsoever. How, how come? Like, what? why... Well, let's say, for instance, I'm going to give you a scenario. Okay. Somebody has my son or daughter. They have 15 minutes to live. They yeah. know where she is or he is. Right. Am I just going to ask him nicely over and over again, where is she? Well, what's your... No, obje- I would stick his head in a vice. Okay. And I would squeeze it until he told me. Okay. And but what if he doesn't tell you? What if he doesn't tell you, though? Well, if he still doesn't tell me, then I guess he's got a crushed head. Okay, so, okay. Well, so hang on. But let me, either let me, way, somebody, somebody, I guess my daughter or son will die, but so will that terrorist, and he won't go on to terrorize anyone else. Well, okay, but, but terrorists don't mind are, dying. But hang on a second, hang on a second, Mark. the information out of him Mark. by torturing him than by me just asking him nicely, okay. please tell me where she or he is. Well, that, that's, I, I think that's partly a faulty assumption, but how far would you take that? What if the terrorist isn't going to talk, so you bring the terrorists daughter into the room would you harm her to make him talk sure i'd stand her right in front i'd put her head in a vice too okay so here's here's the thing i I don't have any issue mark no you've made yourself clear it's good and no one's criticizing you for it and it's good like there are people who are proponents of torture but i i argue this if you want to be a proponent of torture, you should only do it because you are trying to inflict pain on people either out of vengeance or to try and create some semblance of balance. But if you're trying to torture people to get valuable information that leads to an objective, then you will find, and when I say you will find, I mean if you study the evidence of torture that's been used for intelligence purposes, you'll find that it doesn't work, that you don't get quality information. So in the scenario that you presented where somebody's abducted your daughter and you're going to put their head in a vice until they tell you, what you will most likely end up with, and I, I mean statistically, what you'll statistically most likely end up with is a dead daughter and somebody whose head that you've crushed in. Now, does exactly. that, does, but, and but if, if that's is... okay with you, then that's fine. I just don't think that we should be, uh, seek to be barbarians like the people that we are ostensibly fighting. That's the only... This isn't a war. It's not a civilized war. These people are terrorists. They blow themselves up. Right. You, how do you deal with that? Now, Mark, I don't have a problem with, with having terrorist blood spilled. I'm just saying that if you, if you want to use terror... Or excuse me. If you want to use torture to get information, it doesn't work. It's just not an effective means. Okay. Well, I guess we agree to disagree. As <laughs> okay. Sure. Mark, cool. Thanks, Appreciate Mark. the phone call. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, we, we've signed conventions against torture for a reason. There, there's a reason why we consider this uh, a war crime. And, and I think we learned some hard lessons in, in the U.S. response after 9-11, where in some cases they probably did go too far. And what did that accomplish? It's not as though we can say, well, it accomplished a whole lot, but should we have done it? And I think the lesson was that, well, it didn't really accomplish a whole lot. And, and no, we shouldn't have done it. That, that, that should be a point that's not lost on people. Like, you're not listening to two guys who are saying, no, no, we did it to hug terrorists. That's ridiculous. We're just basically saying, why do you want to do that if it doesn't work? Why do you want to do anything if it doesn't work? Well, and let's ask the people who've, who've interrogated these individuals and, and where we've, we've got good intelligence from these individuals. Uh, and what does that mean? I mean, the caller goes right to the ticking time bomb scenario that, that I think advocates of this always do. When has that ever presented itself? When have we ever had a bomb that was about to go off and we tortured a suspect and we stopped the bomb from going off? Give me an example of when that's ever happened. What we need from these individuals uh, are names, where they've been, who they've been in contact with, uh, these kinds of things. And, you know, look, a lot of these guys are more than happy to become martyrs. Uh, And we need to consider that as well. I just uh, Googled... um 
movies about time bombs, by the way, so I could give you a comprehensive <laughs> list. I'll, I'll email that to you. Uh, hi, Jay. Thanks for the phone call. Uh, hi, guys. Um, I, I, I guess I had to kind of sadly chuckle at that last caller's um, comment about this isn't a civilized war, um, as if there's any civilized wars when you're on the, the end of a, a bomb, I guess, right. the receiving end of a bomb. Um, so we've uh, we declared war on terror. We declared war on kind of, let's say, um, people over there uh, 15 years ago almost. And in the in the interim, we've had... Well, I think they declared seven, war on us, but okay, go on. Well, some somebody over there, okay, Osama bin Laden, a small group of people declared war on us. And we went over and we've been bombing people and invading countries ever since. And, and I'm sorry, Belgium know, has been? Um... Well, Belgium obviously is kind of like involved a bit more as far as like the people that they've let in. And and listen, I'm not I'm not from Belgium. I'm I'm not sitting here, you know, sure. going, oh, we've been attacked or anything like that because we haven't. Okay. What, so what's what's need the to... what's the point you're getting to though, Jay? We'll just get you. Well, to kind my of fast point forward. is that like I guess the one point would be that um, you know at a certain point when you've been waging war around the world for 15 years, you have to expect that soon. Like, and you know, we we've managed to kind of I guess you know like keep all the bombing over there okay but sooner or later you know like in war other side gets attacked okay yeah. and so you know we can't we can't expect that we're going to be able to just kind of unilaterally wage war on people for 15 years and, and then not actually get attacked so i'm not surprised about the attack no. that doesn't mean I, I think it's justified and mm-hmm. and frankly i i think that this is all um it's ridiculous to be honest uh, and, and us perpetuating it by you know sending more planes and more soldiers or anything like that over there is ridiculous you know, like if if Iraq and Syria has a problem with ISIS, okay, let let Iran, their neighbor, deal with it. Let Russia, their uh, Syria's ally, deal with it. Let Saudi, you know, I don't even like Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is half the problem. Like they're they are literally half the okay. problem with the terrorism Jay, over there. Okay. Okay. Right. We're just gonna, yeah, you're, you're meandering a bit, but I I, I do get I, I I kind of understand where Jay's coming. I, from. I, I don't <laughs> actually. Why why are we waging war? We should be letting these other people wage war. Well, I think it's, it's okay ex- when Russia drops bombs on Syria, but when the Americans do, it's uh, well these terrorists. Uh, we should expect blowback. I think the I think that the we is uh, yeah I guess that would be a good question for Jay is, is define your we is we Canada is it the West is it NATO is it uh, everybody that's not uh, ISIS is it Christians and Jews I don't know Muslims. how you unilaterally wage war we're, we're at war with something that is fighting back if the argument is well we shouldn't fight back well they make that argument but to pretend that we just started this and we've just been the the aggressors the whole time is just is nonsense. Uh, President George W. Bush, about two weeks or so following the attacks on 9-11, declared war on terrorism, and we've been losing it ever since. The West is being just completely destroyed in the war on terrorism from a return on investment perspective. We've never managed to quash the enemy. The enemy has taken many different forms, has had many different banners, and uh, every time we think that we're getting ahead of one, another head pops out of the ground. It's basically the carnival game whack-a-mole, just on the most disgusting and barbaric scale. But rest assured, if the war on terror is being fought with security machines at airports and listening uh, to every phone call, reading every email in the country. And guess who's winning? It's not the good guys. In fact, we're too far down this rabbit hole to ever be able to claim victory. We have spent billions, if not trillions of dollars in the war on terror. And these guys stitch vests together, wear them under their jackets and kill us by the dozen with hardware supplies. We're getting screwed here. 
We're going to stand down for the 10.30 news. We'll replay some of the comments from the public safety minister. We're expecting a call as well from the conservative's public safety critic. More of your phone calls as well, 974-8255. We're back after this. I'm Roger. That's Rob. The soup today is cream of broccoli. We uh, just enjoyed some uh, Girl Guide cookies, too, here. One more for you, buddy. That chocolate one right there. I like the uh, non-chocolate one. You got a problem with that chocolate cookie right there? Want me to make that go away? Uh, well, you know, if, if you could. Seeing the, by the way, dovetailing from last segment to this one, seeing the new Cookie Monster uh, iPhone commercial? Uh, it was priceless. It's pretty good. They did. That was great. If you haven't seen it, go go on YouTube. Just look up, uh, you know, iPhone, Siri, Cookie Monster. Well well done. I appreciated that. Someone, I, I didn't know this. Someone texted to say there's a, a, a new uh, Samsung or Android ad with uh, Lil L- Wayne. Lil Wayne, yeah. I haven't seen that. All right, pop quiz hotshot. Who's your favorite um, television doctor? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Um... Doctor, and wrong answer. Uh, Trapper John MD is the correct response. No house is probably. I don't know. Well, you know, but remember we had this conversation recently because it it came up that maybe the Alberta government was going to uh, go back and try to work out a new agreement with doctors. That maybe compensation was was something that was going to be on the table as the Alberta government looks to find savings. And we we had an interesting conversation about well, how should doctors be paid? And maybe there's a, a different way to come at this, not necessarily as a way of uh, finding cost savings necessarily, but um, providing different kinds of incentives to physicians and with the ultimate goal, I guess, of, of delivering better care. Right. Uh, results-oriented thinking in, uh, in healthcare. This is really peculiar, and we're going to get into this, this uh, uh, blog posting that our next guest put up online in a place where they, they, they took it down immediately. The, the, the story is peculiar in so many ways, but hopefully when we get past all the peculiarity with our guest, we will be able to uh, uh, get some clarity on what's a really good idea. Dr. Louis Hugo Francescati joins us now, uh, a physician. Uh, He's uh, yeah, a professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Alberta, an emergency medicine doctor. Dr. Francescati, thanks for joining us here. It's my pleasure. All right, so let's go through the story because these are obviously issues you felt needed to be explored. The Canadian Medical Association website seemed like a logical place to to explore these issues. So what happened? Well, I mean, I never asked to write this blog. I was asked uh, to write an 800-word blog on what medical professionalism means to me. So I thought I'd talk about meaningful accountability, something that I started talking about in August of 2014. So when I left the presidency of the CMA, my valedictory address, which is on YouTube, basically spoke about meaningful accountability and uh, never heard one comment about it. The Canadian Medical Association Journal actually wrote an article, and the title of the article I thought was rather uh, strong. It said, CMA president slams doctors in parting speech. And similarly, no response. So then I wrote an article in the Medical Post that uh, was a synthesis of the valedictory address that basically said uh, physicians have to take greater accountability of what we do in healthcare. And similarly, no response. So when this 800-word blog came out, that was basically a synthesis of everything I said. And then all of a sudden, to have you know a whole bunch of people very supportive of it, and some people not supportive of it. 
And uh, then the blog was pulled, and sort of that's the uh, that's the end of the story. Till uh, Andre Picard and others picked it up and reposted it, and then I did a story for CBC yesterday, and it's it's generating good, healthy discussion that we need to have. So it's kind of a odd story that uh, something that you've been saying so strongly for two years is catching no attention, and then all of a sudden it catches a bit yeah. of attention. Yeah. Okay, let, let me just read a little bit of this because. I mean, this is this is pretty well written, and I'm not just trying to butter you up, but I, I think this is some really good rah-rah stuff that a lot of people will hear this and say, yeah, absolutely. So your blog post reads as follows. Um, here's a rather radical idea. If implemented properly and with conviction, this idea will not only immediately improve physicians' morale and increase their sense of engagement, it will also measurably reduce patient error, virtually eliminate weights, improve access to specialist care, and save governments millions of dollars. This elusive dream is a reality if we want it. The solution, as unappealing as it sounds, is rather simple. We as physicians need to stand up and accept account, uh, responsibility for what is going on in our dysfunctional healthcare system across Canada. If we won't fix the problem, who will. This is basically a call to arms for frontline staff that says, look, we're the ones who are who are administering healthcare in this country. We're in the best position to repair it if we so desire to undertake this responsibility. Right. And it was based on a visit to the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, the Cleveland Clinic takes care of the absolute sickest patients in the United States. As a matter of fact, the Cleveland Clinic, any physician can call it before two o'clock and will and that patient will be seen by a specialist that same day so it, it's it's not a sort of a flea bitten you know uh, for-profit operation this is a non-for-profit operation that works at a very high level and so i was interested in finding out how do the docs uh, feel working in the system and what i found out uh when the ceo and his vice presidents toured us was that their physicians are actually salaried and they're on one-year contracts and they're supported in what they do. So that's not to be punitive, but it's to be very supportive. And they're also given the authority and the responsibility with the accountability to make things happen. So, you know, that's one example of a system that works well. Kaiser Permanente is another, the Mayo Clinic, Intermountain Health. So there's many places that we can learn from in the U.S. that have done this and done this well. I think what happened was physicians looked at the line, one-year contract, and uh you know being salaried right. and the initial reaction was to, to push back on it yet at the cleveland clinic very few physicians leave and for everyone that does leave uh, there's another 30 or 40 that want to go and work there so they put the patient at the center and they mean it and that's the difference is you start putting the patient at the center of care and you support your staff and you encourage them to be the absolute best they can uh, physicians respond to that and i'll tell you there's been some negative comments, but the amount of positive emails I've received from docs across the country and the public that I've never met before is overwhelming. So I'm glad it started a discussion, and um, you know, let's let's keep it civil and let's move forward and let's make sure Canadians get value out of the 220 billion dollars a year that we spend on this, you know, sick care system. Well, indeed. Now, you know, and, and, and I'll assume that there's a, a reasonable argument to be made uh, against this. Uh, so it, what seems odd to me is that the CMA was so quick to to take down the blog post. That if, if someone wants to argue against the points you're making, that, that they can certainly do so. But for the CMA to say, these views do not represent CMA policy, that's why they're removing the post. I mean, to, they could have just left it up there and said, look, this is the opinion of Dr. Francis Cuddy, not necessarily the opinion of the CMA. If, if people want to make a counter argument, they can certainly do so. So what, what did you make of how they reacted? 
Well, I mean, I love the CMA. I think they're a great organization, and you'd have to talk to them as to why they did what they did. Uh, but, I mean, the post is, you've just read it. I mean, it's posted just about everywhere. Um, you know, what ends up happening in 2016 is you can pull something down, but the moment you pull it down, 20 people will put it back up somewhere else. So, yeah, it may be pulled down from that side, but it's up in a whole bunch of other spots. But I love the CMA. I think they're doing great work. So, Doctor, you, you referenced the Cleveland Clinic, and it exists in a different healthcare environment, obviously. I mean, the United States doesn't have the same uh, universal healthcare system that we have here in this country. Uh, could, could your plan, would there have to be some adaptation in order for what you outlined to work in Canada, or wouldn't we just basically have doctors shuffling all over the place? No, the way you would do it is you'd break uh, physicians that are practicing into small groups, and you have those small groups become accountable for either X amount of services or X amount of patients. And it's those small groups that would be given the accountability. But remember, only a fool accepts accountability for any problem unless they're also given the authority and the responsibility to make it happen. So it, it would be my responsibility to make, for example, just example, it would be my responsibility to make my emergency department the most efficient department in Alberta. But I would also be given the authority to make that happen and the resources, but I would be accountable. So every quarter, somebody would come to me and say, Francis Cuddy, you're either doing a great job or you're doing a terrible job. So what it does is it gives accountability to the teams, and that'll be nurses, nutritionists, pharmacists, and administrators as well. So the goal is to try and bring that accountability down to a level where you can measure it and then have systems in place that can support it. So if you do that, then at the end of the day, what you end up doing is uh, stealing the Cleveland Clinic model and using it within your environment. You know, the interesting thing is, uh, you know, a lot of physicians, the ones that are complaining about what I said, not many of them have contacted the media to be interviewed to say that uh, we're doing a great job and we need no more accountability. I find that very interesting. <laughs> well, right. And I mean, you're, you're speaking as a doctor. So the notion that this is somehow insensitive to, to doctors and what doctors are dealing with right now, what did you make of that suggestion? Well, I think, uh, I think what happened was uh, it was picked up in Ontario and Ontario is going through a bit of a hard time right now. Their government is not listening to physicians. Uh, They've been without a contract for two years. Um, They're cutting back. They're clawing back. Physicians have to pay the government back uh, dollars that the government says um, they're entitled to. And so it's not a very pretty environment. And I think what happened was somebody read the blog, uh, reacted to it, posted it on a website, and a group of physicians uh, went crazy on Twitter And then the Twitter world lit up and, you know, you can't say much in Twitter other than just to inflame the situation. And I think that's what ended up happening. In response, there's been a lot of physicians that have written uh, far better pieces than I have saying, listen, all this guy is saying is, you know, we're a big player in healthcare. Uh, Why don't we listen to what the governor general said in October uh, 2012 at the Royal College Convocation, where the governor general of Canada called us out. If you go and look at his valedictory speech that he gave when he was uh, made a fellow, he basically said, listen, we're not meeting society's needs. And unless we change what we do, society will rewrite that contract with us. So is this a difficult conversation? Yes, it is. If we we take the time to just, you know, work our way through it nice and calmly. And at the end of the day, we're trying to provide the best service to our patient. And you know what? I focus on trying to get rid of the patient. You know, three risk factors, smoking and activity and poor nutrition, contributes to 50% of the disease burden in this country. And if you were to throw alcohol on top of that, that's probably another 15%. So 65% of what we see in our healthcare system 
does not have to be there in the first place. So let's try and first of all, get rid of the patient. And then the patients that do remain, let's give them the kind of service that $220 billion should provide them with. Yeah. And I was just going to say, I mean, I think there, there's some irony in a way that, that it's, it's really due to the overreaction to this, that, that the piece is probably garnering more attention than it might otherwise have. Yeah, and you know what? I mean, you know, I do a lot of advocacy work, and it's it's hard to get the second day story. Um, we're we're on the uh, one week on this one, so that's the good that I think came out of it. I don't think it was planned that way, but the good news is, at least uh, Canadians are very supportive of what they're hearing, and I think that the profession now has to line up behind Canadians and behind those that want change and say, okay, well, look, uh, maybe we haven't done as as well as we can. Let's let's try and do better collectively, right? At the end of the day, there's only so many dollars that can go around and let's not waste them. Do you need a, a, an act of parliament, though, to make your plan successful? Uh, well, there's going to be a big role for government to play, but I think there's a big role for the profession to play. And uh, no, I really think there's a big role for the media to play, to uh, make absolutely sure that the dollars that are spent are spent wisely. You know, in the United States, we know 35% of all dollars spent in healthcare are totally wasted. So if we're spending $220 billion that we can measure a year, and let's say we even are wasting 10% in our system, that's $20 billion a year that are being wasted. And when governments are being asked to spend 40 to 50% of their overall budget on this portfolio, that comes at the expense of education, the environment, and other things that make people healthier. All right. Dr. Francis Cuddy, we'll leave it there. Uh, your own website is drlou.ca if you want to read more there. Appreciate making some time for us here today. Great. Thank you, guys. All right. Dr. Lewis Francis Cuddy, uh, University of Alberta, as you mentioned, former uh, president of the Canadian Medical Association, and uh, which makes it all the weirder that mm-hmm. he's, he's talked a lot about these issues. You know, I mean, the CMA can post a blog on their website and say, hey, here's Dr. Francis Cuddy, and we know he's, he's got opinions and uh, he's outspoken, and here's what he thinks about this. And if someone wants to say, hey, you know what, I, I disagree and I want to write a rebuttal, Post that. It's just, it's so bizarre. When you yeah. go to the page in the CMA website where this used to be, there's this headline that says, you spoke, we listened. <laughs> and it's, what is that? It means you yeah. got mad, people got mad, and the CMA just yeah, we turtled. Out, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. Well, they, well, yeah, and he didn't write anything slanderous. I, certainly maybe he wrote something unpopular to some, but... I don't know. It's just, it's a bit absurd. We're going to take a break right here, by the way. We'll come back. We'll wrap things up after this. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. All right. Welcome back, Kincaid and Breckenridge. Final few minutes here today, 974-8255. Let's, uh, let's talk to Greg. Good afternoon, Greg. Yeah, you know, I, I just wanted to say that I really applaud the, uh, the good doctor for coming on and, and saying what he's been saying because it is a core problem within the system that we have is that you have certain people that want the system to stay the way it is because they have power, control, and lobbying and continue to, uh, you know, get what they need from it. But the reality of the system, and if you take a look at the acts, and, and anybody can do this, is that the word patient, which is the core element of what we perceive to be as healthcare, is not even mentioned. It's mentioned literally three times in the Canada Health Act, and it has to do with inpatients and outpatients. And that's it. Right. You know, it's interesting to me about the healthcare system in this country. I mean, when you go to a doctor, well, we do have some websites now that like rate your MD or whatever, but uh, when you go see a doctor for the first time, do you get to have that time with him and say like, uh, what have your results been like uh, over the past year? 
Like, I mean, no. I just sort of think that that's information that we, because if you're going to a, a mechanic, for example, you might ask questions or you might get some referrals from people. So I don't know. We just sort of treat healthcare as a different, uh, a different business in the Canadian well, life. Well, but I mean, even just take a family physician versus an emergency room doctor. You, you know, they're both doctors, they're both physicians, but they're doing very different kind of work and, and their work day or their work schedule is just completely different. It's not as though the ER doc can uh, come in and say, you know, how many patients am I going to see tonight? I'll just, you know, I mean, it's, it's a different kind of healthcare response versus what, what the family physician's doing or what, what a surgeon is doing. And so, I, yeah, I think when people say, think doctor, I, different people get different th- images in their head. Yep. And a lot of it tends to be the family doctor. Right, because, you know, they get paid on a per patient basis and they can try to cram in a lot of visits or spread it out and only see a few patients. And, you know, are they really, as someone said, you know, doctors maybe should try listening and caring instead of just throwing prescriptions at people. This kind of stereotype that doctors just walk in and take a look at you and say, yeah, here, go take this. And But I see, I don't know. I, I don't know that that's true. And beyond that, when we talk about doctors as a whole, it's so much more than, than just that interaction. There are also, by the way, there's a real plague in our system. And not to diminish anything that the Dr. Francis Scotty said on the show, but there are people who go to the doctor just to visit. <laughs> there are people who go to the doctor when they don't need to. And we know this is a huge problem in our system. So there should be something to, something to be said about that as well. Uh, we are winding down here. And, uh, boy, quite the scene in uh, Brussels right now. Police are just even just watching this helicopter hovering over uh, what would that be, Sherbeek, where there are raids underway, uh, that they have found nail bombs, uh, chemicals. And, and CNN is pointing out that an ISIS flag was found in the search. Well, that's that's a damning piece of evidence right yeah, there. Yeah, that's serious. Now, you know, and this is interesting. I know the liberals, look, I mean, it's budget day. You had the, the foreign affairs minister. You had the public safety minister uh, speak earlier today. Um, but as the, all the, the ministers are coming out of cabinet and reporters tried to, you know, get Harjit Sajjan, the defense minister, to stop and, and say something. And his response was that he wouldn't take questions because he had to go get pizza for his kids. Whoa. Now. <laughs> that sounds like a guy say, I'm eating a cookie. It kind of does, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Look, if, if the minister wants to say, you know, uh, talk to the public safety minister, the foreign affairs minister, they're, they're uh, handling this file. Or just to, to offer some of those kind of platitudes we were talking about earlier, that would be one thing. That just seems totally tone deaf to me. Uh, there's a, a plane from Brussels has been met by uh, police at the Orlando Sanford Airport in Florida. They are not allowing that plane to go to the gate. Uh, there are all sorts of security disruptions uh, all about the world. Uh, we are done for the day. Danielle Smith is in next. No doubt she will have uh, uh, an update on the situation uh, that's developing currently in Belgium. Also stay tuned in uh, about 92 minutes. Uh, She will be bringing you some coverage of the Liberals' first budget. Justin Trudeau's government's first budget will be delivered by Finance Minister Bill Morneau uh, at 2 o'clock our time. Can't wait. We'll talk to you tomorrow morning. I bet you can. (laughs) Wait, you will. Well, that's true. That's true. I secretly can. We'll talk to you tomorrow morning at 930. Take care. Roger Kincaid and Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays starting at 930 a.m. on News Talk 770 Calgary.